according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Join me once again in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 27. Matthew 27. We're beginning a new section today in our Life of Christ series. Having taken the last two Wednesdays off, so it's been three weeks since our last time together. Appreciate the opportunity to go to Kiev, Ukraine and take part in the graduation over there as well as the two weeks in teaching uh, Daniel and Revelation. As we return back to Life of Christ, though, I realized that when I left town, we... uh, we kind of left things hanging. <laughs> we left Jesus hanging anyway. He was hanging on the cross. And uh, we wrapped up the crucifixion. And uh, Jesus had died. He had breathed his last. He had given up his spirit. And uh, that's where we stopped. So uh, starting today, we're going to get him off the cross. We're going to watch the circumstances surrounding uh, his burial, and the sealing of the tomb, the watching of the women, This is episode 39, 40, and 41 in the Harmony of the Gospels. Episode 39 is the burial of Jesus. Episode 40 is the tomb sealed. And episode 41, the women watch. We're combining all three of those into a single outline of development, points 1, 2, 3, and 4, that we will uh, begin here starting today. Before we do any of that, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege that we have to assemble together. It is, it is a uh, freedom, Father. It is a provision, a grace provision from you that we still have this freedom in this country. We uh, thank you for the, the joy that we have to study, to show ourselves approved, to have our thinking renewed as the word of God transforms us. Father, we thank you for the grace provision that keeps us from being conformed to, uh, to this age in which we live. Father, we uh, commit to you our time now today that you would set aside distractions, that you would uh, be at work in us, open the eyes of our understanding, teach us through the faithful teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit, uh, transform us, Father, through the power of this message. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. We're going to be in all four Gospels as we work our way through. In particular, I think we get uh, very vivid descriptions in uh, uh, the variety of accounts that are found in these different gospel records. As far as the sealing of the tomb goes, uh, that's information we are limited to only the Matthew and Luke accounts. Uh, Mark and John do not make mention of that seal. And then the watching by the women. Interestingly enough, um, the only, one, the only passage that's listed in your harmony is the single verse out of Mark 15, Mark 15:47. And I believe we'll be able to add to that uh, based upon um, both Matthew and Luke. I believe we'll be able to add to those references as we work our way through. Also, um, does anyone have a harmony with them this morning? Do you, do you bring a harmony with, with you to class? You will note when you look at episode 39 that the listing of verses in the Gospel of John is stops sooner 
than verse 42. I don't remember what it is. I thought you might mention. It, I think it runs 31 through 38, something like that. Uh, right, episode 39 in that far right column. 31 through 37. Okay, so uh, every uh, I have corrected that in my notes and in my harmony, and at some point we'll get the uh, the website updated to reflect that as well. So instead of 31 through 37, I think it's best to go ahead and take it through verse 42 and uh, include all of those verses within the burial of Jesus heading uh, that is episode 39. And uh, you'll see what I mean as we uh, as we look at each of these accounts. Well, let's start with the Matthew account. It is the the shortest, really, uh, verses fifty seven through sixty, just four verses there. Uh, and you'll see right away where we left it uh, at the end here of uh, verse fifty six. We saw the women, the many women who were looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him, and uh, we compared all the gospel records to give a complete view of the four named women that are present here to observe the cross. Then verse 17, when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the uh, body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb which he had hewn out in the rock and he rolled a large stone against the entrance way of the tomb and went away so that wraps up verses 57 through 60 that concludes this gospel's record of the burial of jesus once we get to 61 and following we move on into the next episode which is the sealing of the tomb where you see Mary Magdalene and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave, and then uh, the ceiling, which is uh, 62 through 66. See, I would like to take that verse 61 and add it to uh, episode 41 there, uh, as they're mentioned being eyewitnesses to the burial of, uh, of Jesus. So I would add, if I was writing this harmony, I would add uh, Matthew twenty-seven sixty-one to that lonely Mark fifteen forty-seven that's uh, sitting there uh, as the text for episode forty-one. All right, so there it is. When evening had come, now remember what time was it that he was crucified? Remember that there were three hours of darkness, uh, three hours before the darkness, and three hours of the darkness. All right, and then uh, now evening has come. And Jesus needs to be buried. We'll see the circumstances of that in some of these parallel Gospels. So let's go over next to... Do I do, do these in order? Let's do Luke and then Mark and then John. How about that? Luke 23. Luke 23. 50-54. Luke 23:50 and a man named Joseph again you'll notice the immediate context for this uh, Jesus dies he says into thy hands I commit my spirit in verse 49 uh, the centurion watches all these things and says certainly this man was innocent and uh, we got down through verse 49 the last time we were together referencing the women and the acquaintances here that were watching him uh, from a distance so verse 50 and a man named Joseph who was a member of the council 
a good and righteous man. He had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. And it was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Remember, with him being crucified on a Friday, that meant the very next day was uh, was Saturday, was the Sabbath. And uh, again, reference to the women in verse 55 and 56. Uh, the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb, how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. And on the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. All right, so we have him taken down. We have him laid in the tomb. Uh, no mention of a seal, however, in, uh, in the record here. Just the women watching and uh, so forth. All right, now to Mark. Mark 15, 42 and following. Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Starting in verse 42, you'll notice likewise where we left off in verse 41, Jesus has physically died. He uh, uttered a loud cry and breathed his last in verse 37. The veil of the temple was torn in verse 38. The centurion testifies in verse 39. Reference to the uh, women observing the crucifixion in 40 and 41 which brings us to his burial in verse 42. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, uh, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Uh, This phrase, gathered up courage, I think is pretty noteworthy, very uh, descriptive of uh, a man that's willing to stand in opposition to the Sanhedrin of which he's a member, not just a member, but a prominent member, and um, so forth. And yet, uh, to stand forth and offer to to provide the burial services, I think is extraordinary and shows not only courage on his part, but that he's willing to face the consequences of what follows. Uh, He is actually forsaking um, participation in the Passover feast. He will be unclean for touching the corpse. And uh, it means that he will not partake of the Jewish ritual the next day. And so uh, asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. You know, this is pretty fast for a crucifixion death. Normally it's, it's days of, uh, of lingering and suffering and, and asphyxiation before finally the, uh, the lungs collapse and the, and the person expires. Um, <clears throat> so summoning the centurion, he questioned as to whether he was already dead. And, the, and, and ascertaining this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now what we have not read yet, because so far we've just read Matthew, Luke, and now we're reading Mark, we've not read yet is the account in the Gospel of John whereby the Pharisees actually go to Pilate and request for the legs to be broken. And we'll see that here in a moment. Uh, and Pilate gives permission for the legs to be broken in order to speed the physical death. And uh, otherwise, you know, none of these, uh, these, either of these thieves would have been dead by nightfall. Undoubtedly, they would have lasted through Saturday and perhaps even into Sunday uh, before, uh, before they physically died as well. But what did Jesus promise that thief? He said, today you will be with me in paradise. So 
Uh, we'll look at that here shortly when we get to the Gospel of John. But Pilate is surprised if uh, that, that Jesus would be dead already. And, uh, but ascertaining from the centurion, okay, he is dead, uh, he granted the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, laid him in a tomb which, it, which uh, had been hewn out in the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Now, the seal, the, no mention of a seal, but there is the heavy stone that uh, we've seen in, in these uh, gospel accounts. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, uh, were looking on to see where he was laid. Remember, this is Mary uh, called the other Mary in uh, the Gospel of Matthew we just read a moment ago. Finally then, John 19, John 19, 31 through 32. 31 through 42, 42. Cut me some slack. I'm a little rusty. Not really. I mean, I taught 32 times in the Bible college and then um, gave the commencement address on Saturday. I spoke at the church that Sunday. So, um, not exactly. Yeah, I'm not rusty. I'm just tired. (laughs) There you go. 31 through 42. How about that? To tell us, die, it is finished. In verse 30, I use that verse in the commencement address. And Jesus bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Now, before we get to uh, Joseph of Arimathea, he's not even introduced until verse 38. We got this other episode here in 31 through 37. The Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath the Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. So try to speed the physical death. And we can get these corpses off the cross, crosses and get them buried. Uh, so the soldiers came and broke the legs of the... Uh, so Pilate gives permission here. And the soldiers came, broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead... They did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. For these things came to pass to fulfill the scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. So all of that we'll handle as a development under uh, point one before we move on to Joseph of Arimathea under, uh, under point two. And then moving on to verse 38 here in John 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one. All right, but a secret one. And there's a, there's a whole, you know, Sunday's worth of sermons right there on secret disciples. You know, we got a lot of secret disciples today uh, for reasons I'm not clear on because our nation is certainly not in a position where believers are uh, are uh, tortured or in physical danger for professing Christ. You may get a little bit of scorn or ridicule or some uh, so forth. Uh, but believers today are secret disciples that, uh, you know, wouldn't give the gospel to uh, folks and you know wouldn't want folks to find out they're saved or something uh, in any event 
under persecution uh, with the discernment of understanding where you are and the danger involved, there may come a point where it requires us to walk circumspectly in, uh, in this age. And uh, this was the nature here for Joseph. Being a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. He asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate granted permission. So he came and took away the body. And then look who shows up in verse 39. Not, uh, not uh, spoken of at all in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but somebody we know already from the Gospel of John because uh, Nicodemus was seen way back in chapter 3, the uh, ruler of the, fer- of the Jews that came uh, to him by night previously. That's what we see here in verse 39. Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So what are the odds of that? Coincidental, right? that uh, in this very location selected for the crucifixion happened to be a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea, and he volunteered his own personal tomb for, uh, for Jesus to be buried. And uh, I have to wonder if uh, Joseph uh, uh, understood the promises Jesus had made, if he knew it was only alone for the weekend, that uh, there was not a, a permanent uh, housing uh, for this tomb. Uh, I suspect that he did. So, uh, in any event, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So therefore, because the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Okay. And so we have uh, all the details there in the parallel accounts. Let's start with our notes with these Jewish religious leaders. The Jewish religious leaders wanted to hurry up and get Jesus out of public view. I'm convinced this was <laughs> a far more concern to them than uh, any other uh, component that might be spoken of related to the Mosaic Law or the observance of anything righteous. Uh, remember, they are fundamentally murdering Jesus, and they know it. Uh, they are, and yet uh, they, they've taken great pains to not defile themselves by crossing over into the into the Roman uh, territory. They've made great pains not to defile themselves by getting their own hands uh, in contact with Jesus. Uh, they're, they're working very hard to keep themselves ritually clean so they can eat the Passover dinner uh, after the sun comes down. And... Uh, <laughs> So they, they go to Pilate with this, uh, you know, holy attitude that, well, you know, in our law, um, uh, he is to be brought off the tree uh, before night. He's not to be kept overnight hanging from the tree. He's already cursed by being hung on a tree, but the Mosaic law does say not to keep him there overnight. Get him down off the cross. So they can claim a, a biblical basis for what they're doing, but Truly, do they have a spiritual motive at heart or do they have uh, ulterior motives? And that's why I believe the, the real thing they want to do is get him out of sight, to get Jesus out of public view. They uh, convened their first two trials, first three trials really, before uh, the public at large was aware of what was happening, uh, two before the sun even came up, the third one the moment the sun came up, and then rushed him into, the, uh, into Pilate's uh, court system. So a hurry-up effort to get Jesus out of public view. No reminders uh, of 
of his death when the uh, the people come into the temple the next day. Now, obviously there is uh, a convenient excuse by virtue of the fact that there are uh, Sabbath preparation necessities. So point A in the outline. Sabbath preparation necessities provided a convenient excuse. And this is what they're going to claim in verse 31. <clears throat> the Sabbath the next day and the preparation necessities on this day, on Friday, uh, provided a convenient excuse to, uh, can't we just hurry this process along? And so there's the excuse as they voice it. Beyond that, of course, we have the Scriptures under point B. Now, breaking the legs was common. The Romans would, would uh, do this routinely if they had some reason to want to hurry the process along. Normally, the Romans you know, didn't have much urgency. You know, The guy was crucified. He's not going anywhere. And it didn't really bother them if it took two days or three days or four days to, uh, to finally expire. But on the occasion when they did have a, a uh, typically if they weren't going to hang around, if they were moving on to a different territory and wanted to make sure that these uh, folks weren't rescued off their crosses, um, would go ahead and break the legs and, and, and accelerate the physical death process. So this was common. Point B, breaking the legs was common to speed the process from the Roman perspective. And leaving the body overnight would have violated Scripture from the Jews' perspective. Understand this from Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 22 and 23. Leaving the, leaving the condemned man overnight would have violated Scripture from the Jews' perspective. Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. Deuteronomy chapter 21. Does this seem rather um, hypocritical? <laughs> it does to me. Does this seem rather uh, interesting that the very people who have orchestrated his fraudulent conviction, that have orchestrated his murder, um, they want to make sure that even uh, you know all these details are observed so that they can maintain the outer appearance of, of righteousness and the outer appearance of, of their, of their uh, holiness? Deuteronomy 21, verses 22 and 23. If a man committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree... All right, now let's understand a couple of things. First of all, the nor what is the normal method of execution? Was it death by hanging? It was actually stoning, yeah, throwing rocks. That's right. In a couple of cases, uh, the execution means was by burning. For example, witchcraft, harlotry, if it was a daughter of Aaron that was involved in the harlotry... There were some cases where the execution was to be by burning. But mostly, uh, in the vast majority of capital punishment uh, uh, instructions that we have in Mosaic Law, it is death by stoning. The um, hanging on the tree would then be subsequent to the death by stoning, would be the public display of the corpse as being dead in the, uh, the public testimony to the curse that uh, this condemned person is, uh, has suffered. So, if he's uh, worthy of death and he's put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now that's a, uh, 
another component of what our Savior achieved on our behalf on the cross. We were under the curse of sin, and so Jesus becomes a curse on our behalf. A number component of his identification. Not only did he come, uh, identify with us in our humanity, he was truly human. Not only did, did he identify with us in a number of other ways, but he identified with us as in terms of becoming a curse because we are under a curse. And so truly without his hanging, uh, then this reality of his curse would not, uh, would not, have, been, uh, would not have been true. So he who is hanged is accursed of God. So, uh, shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. Now, did they make it? Did they bury him on the same day? They actually failed. They attempted to. They went to Pilate. But each of these gospel records has made clear it was after sundown that Joseph was finally able to get him off the cross. It was after sundown that uh, they finally were able to put him in the ground. So they did not make it. Uh, prior to the next day. I remember in the, in the Jewish reckoning, once sundown comes, you've now crossed into the next day. It is the Sabbath. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea will break the Sabbath to, and defile himself by touching a corpse to bring Jesus off his cross and to, uh, to bury him in his, uh, in his own tomb. So Jesus does indeed become a curse. What else happens when, uh, if you violate this commandment and you leave the corpse on display? Well, it says, so that you do not defile your land. Notice that, verse 23. So that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Understand, there are certain sins that we do that defile ourselves, and certain sins that we do that go beyond defiling ourselves, but actually defile the land itself. Murder and fornication are the two categories that will do that. Uh, When Cain murdered Abel, what did the Lord say? Abel's blood was crying out from the ground, from the land. And there's defilement that takes place. When the uh, the fornication sins take place, what what happens to the, the person doing it, and then what happens to the land in which it's done? We're told that the abomination then causes the land itself to be defiled. So there are ongoing effects beyond the the people involved in the uh, the particular activity. All right, we want to be clear on that. All sin is sin. Yes, I agree. All sin is sin, <laughs> and every sin you commit will put you out of fellowship. And every sin you can commit will have to require the confession of that sin to be restored to fellowship. But there are additional divine discipline consequences that are assigned, in particular for the shedding of man's blood and uh, for the the fornication that uh, result in personal defilement. Defilement of flesh and spirit, we're told, as well as the defilement upon a land in which that activity is uh, not only taking place, but celebrated, boasted about, reveled in, in a culture that sees nothing wrong with it. The land itself, you understand, has been given over in many respects. Now, Is it important that Jesus' bones were not broken? Is it important that when they came to him, they found that he was already dead? It would have been a violation of Scripture. It actually would have been a failed prophecy, failed typology if his bones had been broken. Point C. Broken bones, however, would have violated typology and prophecy. So the voluntary conclusion to physical life was another facet of the Lord's complete obedience. 
that sometimes is not over uh, is not emphasized. Sometimes it is even just totally overlooked, and I don't want to overlook it here this morning. So point C: broken bones, however, would have violated typology, the typology of the Passover feast. You know, the Passover lamb was eaten, the Passover lamb was slain, but no bone could be broken in that Passover lamb. No bone could be broken in the Passover lamb. Why not? Well, because God said so in Exodus chapter 12. That's why not. God said so in Exodus 12, 46. And Israel has been observing that for 1,500 years. All right. 1554, 1446, or wherever you date the Exodus. Okay, They've been observing that since Moses first handed it down. Since the night they came out of Egypt. And for all these years, a millennium and a half, they have not broken the bones of the Passover lamb. So do you think God would allow for Christ's bones to be broken on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD? Not at all. Okay. That would have totally violated the typology of the Passover. Remember, Jesus is our Passover. Jesus is our Passover. Exodus 12 and verse 46. Exodus 12 and verse 46. Saw this passage spotlighted in one of the recent uh, Jeff Foxworthy shows. Okay, no, not recent. It was recent before I left town. So it was a few weeks back. Are you watching the Great American Bible Challenge on Thursday nights? Game Show Network with Jeff Foxworthy? It's worthwhile. Thursday nights is called the Great American Bible Challenge. And it's, uh, it's a game show, but it's all about the Bible. Jeff Foxworthy's the host. And a very clean, family-friendly, all centered in the Bible. All right. So we got all the descriptions here in Exodus 12, uh, verse 43. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the ordinance of the Passover. No foreigner is to eat of it. It's not for Gentiles. It's for Jews. But every man's slave purchased with money, after you have circumcised him, then he may eat of it. A sojourner or a hired servant shall not eat of it. See, this is not for them, it's for us. It's like I tell folks on Communion Sunday, I say, if you're not born again, this is not for you. Please don't participate. It's for the body of Christ. Uh, Verse 46, it is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. And it goes on and describes uh, some more details there. All the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. It is mandated. Every household. If if a stranger sojourns with you and celebrates the Passover of the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. In other words, if they want to identify with the nation of Israel, then they must identify with the nation of Israel. They can become what would later be known as proselytes, converts to the worship of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. All right, and under those circumstances, he shall be like a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person may eat of it. All right, so there it is. No bone can be broken. Now, that's the typology. This is where Passover is a picture and a foreshadowing and a typology. But we also have prophecy according to Psalm 3420. Psalm 3420. 
So it's not simply the typology that would be violated. There's also the verbal prophecy that was uttered. Psalm 34, 20. Verse 19, many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Now, we have the dualism of fulfillment that we see in many of the Messianic Psalms, where you can understand the righteous. Uh, who's that? Who is the righteous? Well, it could be thought of as any believer, anyone that's born again, saved by grace through faith, uh, the, the one who uh, desires to, you know, uh, you and I can expect to be persecuted. Um, and so forth. And you can view this in a general sense as being generally true of any believer. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. In the world he will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. Then you look at this verse specifically as a messianic prophecy related to, well, who is the righteous one? How do we view this as specifically with reference to Jesus Christ himself, the coming anticipated Messiah? Many of the afflictions of the righteous one. And you view it a second way. You view it as literally anticipating the righteous one. But the Lord, that would be his father in this context, delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Now how do you view that? Could that does that have application in the general sense that all believers that have tribulation? Uh, is this a promise that no, no believer can ever have a broken bone? <laughs> well, that makes no sense because believers do have broken bones. So then what do we understand with respect to this? What is this speaking of then? See, this is the clue in the text that tells us that we have to approach this passage both ways. We have to approach this passage in a general sense for the righteous, but we also have to go back and look at this again in a specific sense as it relates to the coming promised Messiah. And we see that it is a promise that not a bone of his will be broken. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. We've got a picture here of Jesus Christ as our Redeemer, as those who take refuge in him. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. All right? <laughs> Isn't this great? You can teach the whole New Testament right here in the Old Testament. All right. Those who hate the righteous will be condemned. All right. Why do they go to hell? Not because of their deeds, not because of their sins, but they've rejected the righteous one. They've rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those who uh, take refuge in him, none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So, broken bones would have violated typology and prophecy. So, the voluntary conclusion to physical life. Understand, why did Jesus physically die? Because he gave up his spirit. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. He cried out with a loud voice and he breathed his last. He had authority from the Father to lay down his life and take it up again. He did so when he laid down his soul as an offering, as a sacrifice. And then he did so a second time when he voluntarily surrendered his physical life. He voluntarily gave up his spirit, entrusted his spirit to God the Father. And when the soul spirit departs the body, the body dies voluntary conclusion to physical life was another facet of the lord's complete obedience now do you and i have authority from god the father to voluntarily end our physical lives we do not that's right we do not
Okay. Only exception to that, I believe, is if it's a love application where we are laying down our life. A soldier throws himself on a grenade. A husband uh, jumps on a gunman or something of that nature. Okay. That if it's a love application defending those you're responsible for, then that's not, uh, you know, that's not a violation of anything. It's not a sin in terms of suicide or anything related to that. But uh, Jesus Christ did have permission to lay down his life. God the Father gave him that permission to lay down his life and take it up again. And so the voluntary conclusion of physical life was another facet to the Lord's complete obedience. reason why was he had preaching to do in Sheol. And the only way to do that is to depart his body and have his soul spirit descend and uh, move on to his next assignment. Hebrews 10, verses 9 and 10. Let's take a look at that next. Hebrews 10, verses 9 and 10. I used this, by the way, when uh, I adapted the Tetelestai message for the commencement address at the Bible College in Kiev. It is finished. And yet when Jesus uttered it in his finished, he moved on to his next work assignment. <laughs> All right. Likewise, for these graduates, they can say it is finished in terms of their studies, but it's time now to move on to your next assignment. What does the Lord expect you to do uh, with the equipment, equipment and training that they have received these last two years? Uh, it's time to move on to the field of ministry that Jesus will very soon open up to uh, each of those graduating students. All right, Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 9 and 10. Now notice, this is the passage that contrasts for us the animal sacrificial system which gives way to the reality. The animal sacrificial system was designed to teach and and open up the reality for when it was unfolded. It was not designed to be the permanent solution to anything. Uh, The law, verse 1, says the law is only a shadow of the good things to come, not the very form of things. So the law was the preview. The law was the the uh, expectation of the reality to follow. And so by its nature, it was never designed to be permanent, never designed to be effective. And it can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make perfect those who draw near. The observance of the, of the Levitical sacrificial system was never going to be a complete and total solution to the problem of sin. Because what happens? Well, next year we do it all over again. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But see, here's the problem. Those sacrifices did not remove sin. They only covered sin. They only provided for the testimony of faith by which death could pass over. See? But in those sacrifices, there was a reminder of sins year by year. Every year, here we go again. It's another Passover. It's another Feast of uh, Booths. Year after year after year. Another Feast of Trumpets. Another Day of Atonement. Here we go again. All right? So in those sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. No matter how you know spotless and without blemish the goat, the bull is, or the sheep is, or the goat is, whatever, they're still just animals. They are not truly substitutionary sacrifices by which the Father is infinitely, eternally satisfied. They're a picture of the coming sacrifice which would perfectly, eternally, infinitely satisfy God the Father. 
So therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, Sacrifice and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus Christ comes in the body that is prepared. Jesus Christ comes and the the Son of God, who's already the Son of God from the foundation of the world, the Son of God who is already the God-man from his Proverbs 8 hypostatic union, now is going to walk this earth in the mortality of a body identifying with us in the human experience of our body. In whole burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Think about it. They've been observing these sacrifices since the Exodus. They've been observing these days of atonement now for 1,500 years. And none of them ever satisfied God the Father the way Jesus Christ will. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I have come to do your will, O God. He is coming in fulfillment of what God the Father has designed, of everything that these shadows were pointing forward to. And he does so in his own volition. He does so not because he has to, because he wants to. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in 100% agreement with the Father's plan. That eternal life counsel from eternity past, that all members of Trinity were in full agreement. Verse 8, so after saying above, sacrifices and offerings and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them which are offered according to the law, he said, then he said, behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. All right, he removes the purpose for the foreshadowing. The foreshadowing was all to point to the one willing to be the reality. And he says, here I am. I am the reality. So now he establishes the reality. And so by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. (laughs) He's not going to come back and do it again next year. All right, once and for all, there is one Passover sacrifice of the Lamb. And a day is coming when uh, that blood will be applied to the nation of Israel. All right, there is a coming day of atonement, as it were, when that festival will have its reality as well. Second advent of Jesus Christ, the blood will be applied to the nation of Israel, and they will be brought under the bond of the new covenant. Hadn't happened yet, but it is going to happen. So by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. See, that's why I love that hymn. Once for all, brother, believe it. Once for all, sinner, receive it. It's a beautiful hymn. Come to the cross, thy burdens will fall. Christ has redeemed us once for all. To me, I mean, this also speaks to the, 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 the blasphemy, the, the hideous Catholic pra- practices and Orthodox practices and that they, they conduct their mass again and again and again and again, re-crucifying Christ every single time. They have, they have these images of, of the crucifix. You know, there's Jesus up there on the cross all the time. No, he's off the cross. Okay, he's off the cross and he's out of the grave. He's seated at the Father's right hand. Anyway. I'm starting to become a vampire. I, I recoil at the sign of a, <laughs> of a crucifix, okay? With a body still hanging on it. I don't mind so much the, the empty cross. I kind of like the empty cross. 
reminds me that he's not on it anymore. Okay? So, no bones could be broken. And then, the piercing by the spear, point D. Jesus' death was verified by the piercing spear. Testified by John's personal eyewitness. Jesus' death was verified by the piercing spear. I meant to bring it. I've got some notes on this. M.R. DeHaan wrote some things years ago about the blood of Christ. and the, the med, He was a medical doctor before he began his Bible studies. and the, uh, What happens in the post-mortem experience of death when the uh, things start breaking down and what might be expected to happen. This mixture of uh, water and blood that comes out described here in verses 34 and 35. Immediately, blood and water came out. And this is testimony to the breakdown of things that only happen after, you know, in a, in a post-mortem circumstance. Death was verified by the piercing spear and testified by John's personal eyewitness. So the Roman, uh, the soldier comes and he pierces his side with a spear in verse 34. And then John's testimony in verse 35. He who has seen has testified, his testimony is true. He knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. Now this refutes some common things that are common today and I wonder if perhaps they were also common in the first century, I don't know. Um, the, the idea that, well, well, a couple of things happened. First of all, rumors started spreading around that the disciples stole the body. All right, But then also another lie We'll see that that first lie is answered by the fact that the, the tomb was sealed, the guards were posted, there's eyewitnesses to, to the fact that no disciple could have stolen the body. We'll deal with that next week. Um, but another story that starts to spread around was that, well, he wasn't really dead. All right, He didn't really die. That Somehow he himself survived this event and, uh, and so forth. And, uh, well, no. Uh, trust me, these uh, soldiers were no strangers to death. And uh, we have the verification of this here. This also, by the way, fulfilled Scripture. They will look upon him whom they pierced. We have that quoted here in uh, John nineteen thirty-seven. Again, another Scripture says, they shall look upon him whom they pierced. Now, what's that about? Is that about Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD, that they will look upon him whom they pierced and say, oh, look who we pierced. Let's bury him. That's right. Yeah, this is testimony of his return in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Let's, uh, let's take a look at that. So this also fulfilled Scripture and looks forward to additional fulfillment in the second advent of Jesus Christ. Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 10. Zechariah 12.10 I love the way all these various scriptures all come together. Even to the tiny little details we might otherwise overlook. The fact that it was a hyssop branch that was raised up to his mouth with that sponge. Looked at that a few weeks ago. Why is the hyssop tree significant? And uh, the the use of hyssop in the Passover, uh, I think, is another fine detail that often escapes us. And the more detailed we look, it just gets more and more beautiful. The more detailed you look at the Word of God, it's, it's, there's no flaws, there's no contradictions, there's no weakness. And only a thing of God can testify to that. <laughs> you know? If anything, I, I, you know, these atheist 
scientists and so forth that start looking at subatomic particles and so forth, and they, they get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller, and they should be praising God for His glory and, and, and His unbelievable might that created all this design. Because nothing of man does that. Anything man-made, when you get smaller, 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 you, you start to see the, the, the flaws. You see the, the ugliness. You see the, uh, you know blemishes and the, the, the different things all right zechariah twelve ten. now uh context for this uh deals with the uh, the wrath of god and the coming uh, judgment upon israel upon the gentile nations and the different things that's going to happen when he returns in second advent um Let's see, without reading the entire chapter. Uh, but you'll notice, in that day, let's see, verse 7, and maybe verse 6. I love to teach Zechariah. Um, verse 6 says, In that day I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot among the pieces of wood, Okay, and a flaming torch among the sheaves, so they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples, while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. So they're given the victory. This is part of his deliverance of, of Israel at this time. The Lord also will save the tents of Judah first, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will not be uh, magnified above Judah. And so the, the preeminency is kept in the proper order. In that day, uh, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. So those with physical infirmities will become like mighty men, and uh, and so forth. Imagine, uh, you know, the disabled and the weak and the infirm in in Jerusalem at this time. You know, somebody like my dad or somebody very physically limited and 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 uh, you know used to shuffling around in a in a slow fashion. Well, not on this day. On this day, even the uh, uh, the uh, disabled will be considered like uh, Navy SEAL combat special forces. Won't that be awesome? <laughs> All right. The house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. See, when all the armies have them surrounded, then God will say, all right, got them just got them just where we want them <laughs> right there you know we're surrounded now great that's just where we want them and that's going to be the reality uh, i will pour out on the house of david and the inhabitants of jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look upon me whom they have pierced see at this point they're no longer looking for the they're going to know that the christ they've been looking for actually came one time, and they crucified him. They're going to know now that when their Messiah comes to deliver them, he's going to be the crucified and risen Messiah who comes for them in grace, despite the fact that they already rejected him once. They will know this. They will testify to this. They will accept this on a grace basis. They will be saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So um, 
And it takes this uh, spirit that God pours out, the spirit of grace and of supplication, so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him. They will have the truly repentant heart attitude that is necessary to, uh, to have the victory on this occasion. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will have the father's attitude for the price that it cost God the Father to bring about their national deliverance. They will mo- they're not going to grieve over themselves. They're not going to have this pity party over themselves. They'll actually do that during the millennium. Uh, but on this occasion, they will have the father's attitude related to uh, the, the price that he paid to purchase them. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. In that day there will be great mourning in Jerusalem like the mourning of Hadradrimen in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn every family by itself. The family of the house of David by itself. Their wives by themselves. The family of the house of Nathan by itself. And their wives by themselves. Remember in the Passover it was communal and if they were too small to eat the entire lamb themselves then they would invite their neighbors. They would make sure that they, that they could consume this entire lamb. Won't be the case in, uh, on this event. On this event it's family by family by family isolated alone. Because the father and son as a family were isolated alone on this uh, doing the work of redemption that they did uh, at the cross. All right. Anyway, there's more. It goes on to chapter 13, goes on to chapter 14. Zechariah is uh, really a... It's unfortunate they call him a minor prophet, isn't it? (laughs) Good messages in there. All right. Which gets us to Joseph of Arimathea. So the Jewish uh, religious leaders approached Pilate and they didn't say, uh, we want to bury him. <laughs> we, wanna, we want to uh, uh, perform a benefit to him or we, we want to honor him with an appropriate Jewish burial. We want to, uh, no. They, want, they went to Pilate and said, uh, let's kill him faster. <laughs> okay. Joseph of Arimathea comes and says, I request the, the, the privilege of burial. I want to bury him. All right. And uh, what a contrast. <laughs> okay. Joseph of Arimathea approached Pilate with a request of his own. And the request was that he might be permitted the blessing of the tremendous expense that he goes to in the, uh, the cost of these, uh, of these uh, herbs and, and everything else. We've already read Matthew 27, 57 through 60, Mark 15, 42 through 46, Luke 23, 50 through 53, John 19, 38 through 42. These are the only four places in the Bible where the word Arimathea is found. All right, so if you want to know where Arimathea is, we don't know. All right, it's only found four times in the Bible and all four verses we've seen so far are already today. Subpoint A, Arimathea has not been identified with certainty. To this day, it remains one of the open questions of biblical scholarship. Uh, There are three kind of leading contenders, plus uh, a multitude of other kind of minor uh, contenders. Possible uh, Old Testament equivalents include Rama in Joshua 18.25. Rama. And and basically it comes down to... um, verbal uh, similarities between the term Arimathea and some of the Hebrew references from the Old Testament. Uh, But Rama we know about from Joshua 18, verse 25. Rama was fairly well known through a couple of different Old Testament studies. Um, Another uh, potential, this one I think is maybe the most common, 
is spoken of as the birthplace of Samuel. Samuel's birthplace in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1 and verse 19, called Ramathiam Zophim. All right, the two uh, Ramas there. Ramathiam Zophim. And, and for whatever reason, and, and a lot of commentaries just say this is what it was. And then they even mention that there is a controversy, there's any question or, or doubt or anything. They just say this was the Old Testament, Ramathiam Zophim, and there you go. But honestly, there's no agreement among New Testament scholars as to where Arimathea was truly located. Uh, there's also an apocryphal equivalent that's, that's uh, referenced in 1 Maccabees 11.34. I actually think that's probably the, one of the, the most likely one of all, just based upon the geography, one that would be nearby for uh, Joseph to be coming in from on this day. Um, but who knows? Uh, it's not clear in the New Testament, so I'm kind of relaxed about it. So it's only mentioned four times in the Bible, and all four times is connected to this Joseph guy here that we're looking at today. Um, who else was from Arimathea? We don't know. As far as the New Testament tells, uh, Joseph was the only inhabitant of that town. Um, we don't know uh, any other residents. We don't know any other details related to Arimathea. His descriptions are interesting. Matthew describes him as a rich man. By the way, I'm just going to abbreviate J-O-A. I got tired of typing Joseph of Arimathea for all of these points. I did the same thing with JTB. Remember JTB? Capital J, little T, capital B, John the Baptist. All right. So JTB and J-O-A. Matthew describes Joseph of Arimathea as a rich man and a disciple of Jesus. That was his description. His wealth, but also his discipleship. Recorded in Matthew 27. His wealth and his discipleship. Which is interesting because Jesus had taught repeatedly that not many mighty, not many rich, right? It was easier for a rich man to, to pass through the eye of a needle than it would be to, uh, you know, for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for the rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And so based on Jesus' teaching and the fact that most of his financial support came from these women followers, uh, we don't know much about wealthy men in, uh, in his uh, time that, that were following him and supporting him. Um, but here we, we learn of this one. And we learn that he kept it secret. He, didn't, uh, he wasn't public in his, in his support. That's Matthew's description. Mark and Luke both describe him as a voting member of the Sanhedrin. Mark describes Joseph of Arimathea as a prominent member of the Sanhedrin. Not just a member, but a prominent member. We've got the adjective there describing that he wasn't, a, uh, he wasn't obscure. He wasn't a backbencher. Okay? You know, Julius Caesar's grandfather was a backbencher in the Roman Senate. Uh, entitled to cast a vote when he, the vote finally came to him. But by the time it reached the backbench, the, the, the matter was already decided anyway. His vote was not really counted for anything. The nature of, uh, of that for what it was. But that wasn't the case here with Joseph. He was a prominent member, would have been one of the leading speakers, would have been making motions, would have been influencing other members. So this was the record we saw in the Gospel of Mark. Luke, before we get to Luke, a couple of points here under Mark. This description is interesting. Mark 15, verses 43 through 47. Mark 15. I think it does show uh, that believers in this time frame could have had a very biblical eschatology and what their expectations were. This is, this is their expectation. 
And there was nothing in Jesus' ministry that disabused him of this expectation. He still had this expectation, even though he was watching Jesus submit to the, submit to the, uh, to the condemnation and the death. Mark 15, 43-47 again. We've already read it, but let's look at it. It says, A prominent member of the council who himself, who himself, unlike the majority of them, but he himself personally, was waiting for the kingdom of God. Is that what the council was about? Was the council waiting for the kingdom of God? Not in the slightest. The council was happy running their own empire, running their own temporal life dominion over the Jewish people. But he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. His attitude was in full expectation of the Old Testament promises for the coming kingdom. So he was looking for the kingdom of God. And then secondly, he gathered up his courage. He gathered up courage and went in before Pilate. That idiom is interesting. Gathered up his courage. Okay? Like he had a little bit here and a little bit there and a little bit over there. But he had to kind of sweep it together all in one collective pool to say, okay, now I'm going to go do it. I'm going to stand before Pilate and in full defiance of any, any other member of the Sanhedrin or the entire Sanhedrin from the high priest on down, I'm going to be the one that buries him. Okay? And he's willing to do it. So his audience with Pilate required Joseph to gather up his courage. And I enjoy that, uh, that idiom. I think there's lessons there for us as well in our own gathering up of courage. You know, don't be embarrassed if it takes a moment, a couple of moments, some time to uh, say, Father, this is what I intend to do, but... I need your encouragement. I need your help. And, uh, and gather it together. All right. Luke describes him also as a matter of the, member of the Sanhedrin, but makes clear that he was not one of those who voted for condemnation. He did not cast his vote in favor of Jesus' conviction. Luke also identifies Joseph of Arimathea as a member of the Sanhedrin, but makes clear he was not in favor of Jesus' conviction. Luke 23, verses 50 through 55. He did not cast his vote against Jesus Christ. And then point E, John. Wow, I'm two minutes long. My apologies. John describes how Joseph of Arimathea received assistance from Nicodemus. So, interestingly enough, Nicodemus didn't gather up his courage to go get the body and volunteer to do the burial. But once he saw Joseph's faith, now he steps forward and says, well, let me help you. Let me help you. Okay? And I like that. To me, that's, that too is a picture and a recognition that, you know, you may feel like, okay, I have to take this stand, I have to stand alone. And when you do take that stand, when you do stand alone, it's always nice when somebody else steps up also and says, I'm with you. I understand. I appreciate you took that stand. I'm going to take that stand with you. And, uh, and Nicodemus does, uh, fulfills that role also. And uh, we've got a pattern there that we may learn from as well in our own day and age when uh, you and I are expected to uh, stand faithful to the truth of God's word. All right, well, this is about half of it. We um, will come back next week and move on to the sealing of the tomb, why it is that they're not happy with him dead and buried, uh, that the uh, religious leaders still 
have fear. They're still afraid of him, uh, even after he's dead and buried. And so they go back to Pilate and uh, say, uh, we're not content with him in the ground. And uh, we have additional issues that uh, we're afraid of. He claimed that he was going to rise again from the dead. All right. And, uh, <laughs> you know, does Pilate look at him like they're a bunch of lunatics? What do you mean? He claimed he was going to be, he's going to rise from the dead on the third day? And you're afraid of that? <laughs> All right. Well, we'll deal with that next week. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for uh, uh, safe travels and a return back to my flock. Father, I've missed uh, these sheep. I've missed this class. Father, it's just uh, a delight, once again, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, uh, we're in your hands day by day and moment by moment. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.